Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles Making Montana Connections. I'm Tim McGonigal. Seeing the world was always a dream for Anita Bacos. Experiencing it from the middle of a war zone was probably not part of the plan. After growing up in the small central Montana town of Denton, her journey led her to the CIA where she worked as an analyst and later a targeting officer. It was in that position where she helped bring down the leader of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, one of the world's most wanted terrorists, Abu Musab al-Zakari. When I spoke with her in February, I asked her about a number of topics, including her time growing up in rural Montana, how her path led her to the CIA, and if indeed she was the inspiration for the Jessica Chastain character in the film Zero Dark Thirty. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Nada Bacchus. Did you uh, ever imagine that your life would take you from central Montana to Iraq, where you would uh, help bring down some of the world's most notorious terrorists in history? No, I did not envision going to a war zone. I definitely did not think that would happen. I was interested in working in foreign policy, and I was also interested in living overseas ever since I was very young. All right. Well, speaking of being uh, very young, uh, when you were very young, you grew up in uh, Denton, Montana. Uh, Talk to me about the the memories of small town life there in Denton and uh, maybe how uh, growing up there, it helped uh, shape the values that uh, you learned later on through high school, through college, and through your time in the CIA? I partially grew up in the small town of Denton and partially on the farm, depending on the day of the week. <laughs> um, so my life was a lot like most Montana kids who grow up you know, working in agriculture and their family has been in agriculture for years. I would dedicate you know, time to harvest and everything else, just like the rest of the family. Um, in addition to having the freedom, I think that's really unique to kids that grow up in, in a rural environment like that. And the responsibility that you have when you're 15 and driving a million dollar tractor around the field. All right. Uh, your high school graduating class, I heard it was like nine people. Is, is that right? And what was that like to, to be in just one of yeah. the nine, I guess? <laughs> yeah, my high school graduating class was single digits. <laughs> Um, we were the smallest class, I think, to have graduated from Denton since the inception of the school. So I, that was the beginning of, I think, the declining numbers for that town. But um, it was definitely unique because it's more like having siblings and cousins than it is having classmates when you have that few people. Do you often get back to Denton at all and see some friends and, and family? Um. My brother still lives there, so periodically. My dad passed away from coronavirus in December, um, sadly, so we, um, that's one less reason for us to get back as often. But yeah, we do get back to Montana periodically. I still have very good friends that live in central Montana. Okay, and uh, to, to begin with, I believe with your college uh, years, you, you stayed fairly close to home. You went to, to Montana State. Uh, Talk about uh, going on to college and uh, your, your college years. Yeah, my undergraduate um, years were spent at Montana State University in Bozeman. Go Cats. <laughs> um, there, I actually started out studying economics. And I spent my very last year of school um, at the University of Utah studying international economics. Okay. And then talk about the career path after uh, college graduation. What, uh, what, what did you do after that? 
I spent a lot of time in the 90s trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So after college, um, I worked in a variety of sectors, um, banking, mining, all sorts of things. And I decided that um, I really still was focused on living and working overseas. So I found a job that actually spoke to some of the goals that I had to live overseas. And it was a, an ad in The Economist for the CIA. I actually had taken um, a trip to India with the hopes of going to grad school while I was there. And um, they were looking for people with international expertise in addition to um, just, you know, interest in foreign policy. So now when you went to the CIA, did you start immediately as an analyst or did you start in another uh, uh, department there? I didn't start immediately as an analyst. I actually started in a position that was more like um, an organizational consultant because that's what I had been doing prior to working at the CIA. So I started there in a job function that I was eminently qualified for. Um, and as time went on and progressed and I worked more with the people on the operations side and the analytics side, I decided this is really the, t the place I wanna be. I wanna be closer to the pointy end of the sphere and um, that was really my intention of going there in the first place. So I ended up transferring over to the analytics side. Okay. When you uh, first got to the CIA, was uh, talk about the, uh, the application process. Was it uh, a rigorous mental test or how, how did that uh, work for you? So when I first got there um, in the organizational management type of role, I didn't have to go through some of the more rigorous uh, testing that you have to go through to get into the analysis or operation side. You do have to hold a clearance. You have to hold a top secret clearance. You have to jump through all of those hurdles. But then when I applied to the um, analyst side, I had to take the battery of tests for personality, IQ, um, pretty much runs the gamut in addition to, uh, of course, everybody there has to have a polygraph in order to work in the building. Okay. Uh, when you uh, uh, did become an analyst, uh, what, what did that entail? Talk about, uh, I guess, a typical, maybe there's no such thing as a typical day in the life of an analyst <laughs> at the CIA, but uh, basically what did you do as an analyst? So analysts at the CIA actually are responsible for communicating intelligence to the policymaker. They have an account where they're building expertise and then they're analyzing all of the information as it comes in, the, the collection from across the world in addition to anything that's out in the open. And you actually put together a picture for the policymaker through a written product. And it's delivered to whether it's the president, Congress, cabinet, anybody in the administration, depending on the level of the product and their clearance as well. And the timeline that we're talking here now is uh, as you became an analyst, I, I believe was at about 2000 that, uh, that you uh, moved into that role? No, I didn't move into the analysis role until right after 9-11. Okay. So it was, it was after 9-11 that you became an, an analyst. Did that mm -hmm. kind of help you make a decision to become an analyst, or had you always wanted to be an analyst once you got to the CIA? I always knew that I wanted to be closer to the edge, to being you know, in the middle of everything. So I knew that I was interested in either the operations side or the analytics side, but after exploring it, um, the analytics side just uh, spoke to me. It was really the interest that I had. So that's why I pursued that. But the push after 9-11, of course, um, 
where they were hiring a lot more people. The freeze had been lifted from the hiring process. Um, that's why I took the opportunity to go ahead and apply. Okay. And as an analyst, I know uh, you had uh, a role in tracking down the Osama bin Laden. Uh, uh, talk about your role in that whole operation, if you can. So my primary account was actually working on Iraq. So it was okay. looking at whether or not 9-11, Al-Qaeda, and Iraq had any intersection where they had worked together um, prior to 9-11 and if Iraq was involved in 9-11. We found out through all the analysis and the collection that Iraq and Saddam Hussein were not involved in 9-11 and were not counterparts of Al-Qaeda. And as time went on, um, working as an analyst, I decided to transfer over to the operations side to become a targeting officer. And so my primary role at that time was managing the team that was targeting Zarqawi, um, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who ended up eventually joining Al-Qaeda and becoming part of that organization and building a huge terrorist organization actually throughout Iraq. And, you know, in process of that and, and following him and, you know, trying to dismantle his organization, there were intersections with central Al-Qaeda and the main leadership. So we happened to pick up a courier who was coming over to deliver a message to Zarqawi from Al-Qaeda leadership. And that courier also helped identify bin Laden's personal courier. Uh, and uh, Zarqawi, uh, he was as, I'm not sure, as nasty as they come as far as terrorists. Uh, is that correct? You learned a lot about this guy. What, uh, what was it that made him so, so deadly? Well, as most people who follow, you know, extremists and cults, their, you know, means to an end, they will do anything, whether it's killing um, innocent people, um, they will take measures that, you know, normal people would not do just to be able to achieve a goal. And he was definitely uh, one of the worst of the worst. He was just systematically killing every innocent Iraqi just in order to cause chaos. So he was, you know, attacking schools and um, he was using multiple uh, vehicle bombs to run into buildings. And um, he just didn't care what kind of damage he incurred. I know a lot of people will often say, uh, why do uh, extremist groups, you know, have this hatred for America? Why do you, why do you think it is? Why do they hate us so much here in the United States or in the West? Well, it's not um, necessarily just a hatred for America. So when you look at extremist groups, they run the gamut. Um, there's, you know, extremist groups here in the United States mm -hmm. that dislike our government. There's extremist groups um, in other parts of the world that like the government that's overseeing their country. So, Extremism itself is usually some kind of um, disagreement and grievance with the current way of life that they're living in. And in this case, when it came to Al-Qaeda, bin Laden had constructed most of his grievance around the United States government, bin Laden himself. And a large part of that was because he claims um, the United States was meddling in the Middle East in places that he didn't think they should be. And 
I think a lot of the time the message has some kind of truth to it in that they can glom onto some of the facts and then use those facts and create misinformation around those facts in order to attract followers. And, and extremists are very, very good at leveraging misinformation. Okay. I want to go back to your time as an analyst uh, real quick. Uh, in your book, uh, the uh, entitled The Targeter, My Life in the CIA, CIA, Hunting Terrorists and Challenging the White House, and also in the documentary that was on HBO, Manhunt, uh, Search for Bin Laden, uh, the role of uh, women like yourself as analysts is, is highlighted. And uh, what differentiates men from women as analysts? I mean, I'm sure there's male analysts out there who can say they're good analysts, uh, female. There's, there's probably positives for, for both sexes in that, uh, in that role. But what, what in your mind makes women good analysts and makes them stand out in that role? Well, and I think it depends on the person, right? I don't think it's just your gender. But I, what I do know for a fact is that having people from diverse perspectives and diverse backgrounds is immensely helpful. There is just no way that one optic from one, you know, gender or culture is actually helpful when it comes to international policy and working through foreign policy issues because nothing is seen through just one lens. And to be able to, you know, attack a problem with diverse experience, that's how you win. And that's absolutely what happened at the agency, being able to track down Bin Laden, being able to track down Zarqawi. Now, the book uh, is titled the, uh, the Targeter, My Life in the CIA, Hunting Terrorists and, the, uh, chal and Challenging the White House. So I'm curious, uh, could you briefly describe some of the challenges that you did face from, from the White House and from the president? Initially, as you know, on the analytics side, in the run-up to the war, um, there was an actual group built in the Pentagon to counter our analysis and you know our overall intelligence collection. They really wanted to find a link between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda, and it just wasn't there. Um, we weren't willing to say it wasn't there, so there were some challenges from that organization run by Doug Fife. Um, Initially, the vice president was pretty convinced that there had been some kind of link. Eventually, we were able, obviously, to convince the vice president that that wasn't the case. But as you'll notice, um, if you go back and look at the speeches and some of the commentary on the Sunday morning shows, the commentary from some people in the administration, and not all, some people in the administration were portraying a link between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. And our intelligence did not find that. And that was all communicated to the White House and Congress prior to the war. But there was a lot of um, tense moments and tense meetings with the administration and others. Um, I know there was also some speculation out there that uh, you yourself were the model for the Jessica Chastain character on the movie Zero <laughs> Dark Thirty. But uh, is, is that true or uh, can you dispel that? <laughs> That is not true. I had left the agency um, right before they actually got Bin Laden. So I wasn't even working there at the time. That all came about because I participated in the HBO documentary Manhunt that had to do with finding Al-Qaeda and finding Bin Laden. And I, I was just one of a handful of women in the movie. And I think I was the youngest one in the movie at the time. <laughs> so that was just an extrapolation by, I think, um, 
a journalist from the Daily Mail who attended Sundance <laughs> Film Festival. <laughs> well, uh, in, in your role as the targeting officer, again, you did go to Iraq. Uh, talk about when you, when you found out you were going there, was it, uh, what were the feelings uh, going through your head? Was it, were you scared? Were you nervous? Were you kind of saying, well, here's the adventure that, that I want to be a part of? Yeah, I mean, I raised my hand to go. So I wasn't necessarily scared. I was nervous and I was really nervous about making sure I was doing the right thing in my job and making sure that I wasn't going to make a fool of myself and that I was going to support my team as much as I could. That was back at headquarters, um, gathering all the information that we needed in order to fulfill, you know, the painted picture for the policymaker. So there were moments, um, obviously, that I was scared. I mean, you're in the middle of a war zone and you're, you know, you're a target and you're, you're actually being, you know, fired upon and, and mortars lobbed where you're working. And that's not exactly the most comforting thing in the world. But um, yeah, it, it was a bit intense. Um, and at the same time, I really felt like we had taken the eye off the ball by not really going after Al Qaeda aggressively and switching gears and invading Iraq, an entire country. Okay. And also, uh, during the, uh, the documentary, you mentioned a part in there where you say that uh, you have to know what your moral center is. Uh, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, part of your job as a targeting officer is to dismantle these networks. So part of dismantling the networks is leveraging your action arms. And at the time, inside of Iraq, the action arm was special forces. We didn't, um, at that time, we did not have armed drones. We had surveillance drones, which were extremely helpful, obviously. Um, so leveraging those was fantastic. But you have to be very comfortable with the fact that when you're putting together target packages and you are trying to dismantle this organization, part of dismantlement means that some people are going to be killed. And you need to be okay with the fact that that's um, part of your job. Okay. Uh Bin Laden and uh, Zarqawi, uh, from, from what you gathered, was, was there some sort of falling out between those two? Uh, I thought I heard that Bin Laden said that this guy wasn't quite the, as good as he thought he was going to be. Or something. I, I don't so Zarqawi was not a scholar. He was a thug that grew up on the streets in Jordan. He was in and out of prison. Um, he ended up basically by personality, gathering a ragtag group of followers that were not up to standard for Al Qaeda, including himself. But he really wanted to focus on the Jordanian kingdom initially as a target, so Al Qaeda didn't want any part of that. That wasn't their focus. Their focus has basically always been the United States. So Zarqawi, you know, not really wanting to participate in, in their central agenda, it wasn't until the United States started to talk about invading Iraq and he had fled Afghanistan that he wanted to then part, part of that game. But he still wasn't willing to join Al-Qaeda until much later. And part of the problem was that Al-Qaeda really resisted his tactics. They didn't agree with him killing every innocent Sunni and every innocent Shia Muslim in Iraq just to achieve this agenda. They thought that was not a good idea and they didn't agree with it. And then how did, uh, you were still with the CIA when Zarqawi was finally killed. Uh, mm -hmm. talk, about, talk about that day when you found that out. Uh, what, what was the feeling that went through your, through your mind? 
so I had just moved on to a different account. Um, I was one of the last people to keep working on Zarqawi and the Iraq account. And it, I just, it had taken enough of a mental toll at that point. So about three months before he was um, found and killed, I had moved on to a different account. So I was traveling for work and I just happened to walk down into the lobby where I had a coworker standing there and she said, look at the, look at the monitor, look at the TV right now, look at the cryon. So right across, scrolling across the board was that Zarqawi had been killed um, in Iraq. So it was, it, it had to be somewhat satisfying for you, I think, that uh, he was finally yeah. out of the picture. You know, honestly, it was, it was a relief to hear that he had been killed, but at the same time, knowing that this wasn't the end of, um, unfortunately for the people, especially the people of Iraq and, and all the coalition forces, this wasn't the end of terrorism in, inside of Iraq. And then uh, when, when did you eventually leave the CIA? Was that, I believe, 2010? Yeah, and I left, um, you know, for a variety of reasons at the time. It was just best for me and my family. And, um, you know, I miss it. I do miss the work. I miss being able to go back and see a lot of the colleagues that are still there. Um, since, since then, several have left, and I have, you know, sort of the growing connection outside of the agency. But, um, you know, I, I've resigned to the fact that I'll never have a job that's anything like that. Um, and it was just a very unique environment, and it was uh, um, a lot of colleagues that I actually really respect. And do you still stay in touch with them uh, through? Yeah, like email as much as I can. Just, yeah, yeah. Um, so again, after you had left the CIA, Bin Laden was finally uh, captured and killed. Uh, talk about uh, your thoughts on when you when you heard that news that that they had finally achieved that. Uh, goal of killing bin Laden or getting bin Laden eventually killing him. You know, um, hearing that bin Laden had been killed was cathartic because, you know, not too long before that we had colleagues killed in coast Afghanistan by, um, an asset of Al Qaeda. He was a double agent. And so it was, it was personal for a lot of people at the CIA at the time, those of us who knew, um, some of the people who were killed in coast, so from that perspective, it was a relief. Um, and also just to close that piece of, you know, terrorism and, and our history and have some kind of closure, hopefully for some of the families affected by 9-11. Um, just, you know, still having him out there and, and pursuing that agenda is just dangerous. Do you, do you think that there, what lessons do you think that, uh, and the CIA learned uh, from from the whole uh, Al Qaeda experience. I mean, it's hard to say what the building itself <laughs> has learned. Mm -hmm. um, what I know is that pursuing um, terrorism tactics is not an end goal. There's just no way that you can you can defeat terrorism by one bomb at a time. Um, this is a, this is an issue that has to be. There has to be some kind of strategic um, goal put in place and understanding, you know, what are some of the underlying factors driving this and why is this attractive to some people and why isn't it attractive to others? So extremism in general is a really complicated problem, but I think we're getting closer and closer as time goes on and studying this through academic research and through, you know, government efforts and, and research in that end. 
to be to stemming the tide of extremism. Is there anybody out there today like like Osama bin Laden who, you know, is maybe a a terrorist that is as bad or near his capability of when it comes to to killing? You know, it's, um, there hasn't been anybody that has exhibited the kind of charismatic leadership that he has. So we can be thankful for that. There's plenty of people still around that were part of that old Al-Qaeda guard that have the capability, but they just don't have the uh, charisma that bin Laden had. And it's also a different time. You know, there's a lot has, you know, passed since bin Laden was able to build this organization. It's a lot more awareness. There's a lot more, you know, countering violent extremism efforts that have been put into place around the world. So hopefully we'll continue to learn from that and be able to um, prevent these groups from organizing before they start, because that's when it becomes very difficult. And Nada, what are your thoughts about uh, the domestic terrorism? For example, the recent uh, things that we saw at the, at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, how big of a problem is that uh, for the United States? You know, um, the United States has been grappling with white supremacy for a long time. Um, but when you look at the cap Capitol insurrection, there's that's a very sort of um, distinct uh, problem. It's not just the white supremacy issue. It's not just the far right issue. There is an entire issue surrounding people with, you know, um, buying into misinformation and buying into expectations around how to change government and what's driving some of the factors that they're not uh, happy with. And I think education for the most part of the adult population is warranted. And I think that we need to start focusing on some of the countering violent extremism tactics here in the United States as well. Okay. So tell me, Nada, what, uh, what you did after you left the CIA and uh, what, have, what have you been doing then and what are you doing now with, uh, with your days? So I, I wrote a book. Yeah. Um, I've, done, I, it, I've worked for Starbucks Public Affairs and Government Affairs for a while. Um, I left there going back, heading back to D.C. to pursue another career um, in government when we just decided the last minute not to do that as well. And mm -hmm. so I've been doing a lot of consulting and on anything from TV shows and movies to working with other organizations on how to identify risk and build a, you know, analytics capability and um, actually have worked in the social media tech world trying to help you know, hone policy and their product engineering so that they can stem some of the um, extremism also, because as everybody knows and recognizes, there's some issues around, you know, things spreading on social media that aren't true. Right. Speaking about uh, TV movies, uh, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on some of the movies that we see about uh, that the, the center around the CIA, some of the TV shows. Homeland was very successful. How, how accurate are they? Uh, I know they're probably dramatized for Hollywood a little bit, but uh, would you say for the most part they're, they're pretty accurate? It depends. So <laughs> Homeland depends had a lot of, you know, um, there's a lot of drama in Homeland, especially right. with main character. There are um, operations and, and different things that these shows do well. They have technical consultants quite often that they hire. I, you know, not, I didn't work for Homeland, but I've worked for other shows on just different episodes. Um, 
but overall, The Americans was written by a former CIA analyst and, and the ops stuff, some of it is, you know, some of the tactics is interesting that he employs. There's, he obviously has license to have a lot of drama <laughs> in that show as well because they're supposed to be KGB agents that do things that, you know, CIA officers can't do. Um, so I think... I think that's the most, you know, authentic from a technical perspective, but I have yet to see a show where I'm like, it's just like that. Because in my, in my view, it's more like a little bit of a combination of The Office with a little bit of James <laughs> Bond. It's not, um, yeah, that, that sexy all the time. All right. Uh, and Nita, what, how would you uh, rate from the outside here, from the state of the CIA uh, nowadays. Uh, I know we just do new, have a new administration, and, uh, but uh, from, from your perspective, how, how do you think the CIA is doing? You know, it's, that's hard to know. Um, I don't exactly know what the attrition numbers look like or what they look like for the last four years. As we know, the administration didn't exactly um, value that, that work or the building itself. So hopefully they'll be able to, you know, rebuild and, and become an important part of that national security process again. Um, and I think that, you know, for the most part, it, especially when you look at it from the outside, you know, they were continuing to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like you're still very proud of the fact that, that you were a part of that uh, organization for as long as you were. And if you had to do it all over again, you probably wouldn't change a thing, right? Maybe a couple of things. Couple but things. yeah, <laughs> I, I, did, I did enjoy the work. You've been listening to a conversation with Nada Bacos, originally from Denton, Montana, and a former CIA analyst and targeting officer. Her book, The Targeter, My Life in the CIA, Hunting Terrorists and Challenging the White House, is available online. And a documentary featuring her work tracking terrorists called Manhunt is available on demand through HBO and Hulu. Next time on McGonagall's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. You don't change. It doesn't, uh, your worldview doesn't shift and food doesn't taste better. And it just, you know, it's just another day with a, a different sort of description as to what I do for a living. Great Falls writer Jamie Ford, the New York Times bestselling author of Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, shares his literary wisdom. We invite you to follow this podcast on social media and offer your feedback and story ideas. Look for McGonagall's Chronicles on Facebook and Twitter. Until next time, I'm Tim McGonagall.